Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's episode of Daily Horror Habit highlights an unconventional kaiju thriller with 2016's Shin Godzilla. Directed by Hideki Yano and co-directed by Shinji Higuchi, and the 31st entry in the Godzilla franchise, Shin Godzilla is no traditional reboot, as the film shows a different side of not only its titlier monster, but of humanity as well, given the film's satirical commentary infused into this more horror-oriented kaiju film. And joining me to chat about Anno and Higuchi's bureaucratic nightmare is returning friend of the show and concept artist Matt Jordan, whose artwork you can check out on Instagram and Twitter at MattPaintE. So without further ado, here's our conversation on Shin Godzilla. Matt, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, good to be back. Yeah, it's uh, a pleasure to have you once again. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about this movie that you and I have been talking about for like a couple of weeks, probably actually months at this point. And it's great to kind of get together to have a, uh, a little more of a concrete discussion about the reasons why we think that today's film, Shin Godzilla, does such a good job at kind of re- redefining expectations for these types of movies in a lot of ways, because I think it's great that we're having this conversation coming off the heels of the hype sort of dying around Godzilla vs. Kong's release and how that kind of like basically set the internet on fire and all these things. And then I heard a lot of the same complaints that I've been hearing about that film that I hear from people about a lot of other kaiju films in general. This idea that like, oh, it's all about the action. It's all about the monsters and the human element really kind of gets left behind in terms of ensuring it receives the same amount of development or fleshing out as the monsters who are obviously the stars of the show get. So I think it's interesting to talk about Shin Godzilla because this film really addresses a lot of the criticisms that most kaiju films get. And I think that within the sort of kaiju audience and horror audience to a certain extent, like people are cognizant of that. But at the same time, I still feel like this movie doesn't get enough love for doing exactly what people complain that these movies don't normally do. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting watching it in the context of the uh, the recent American Godzillas, because I think those have gotten probably progressively better over time in that they stopped relying on the the human element in the story that I just don't think was working. You know, to the point that the last movie, you know, Godzilla versus Kong, which I thought was pretty fun, is almost boiled down to just nothing but a fight between Godzilla and Kong. And then it doesn't, you know, it works because it's not reaching for anything past that. But then you have this movie, which is almost completely about the human element. And, you know, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this is my favorite kaiju movie that I've ever seen. So uh, so there's, there's clearly a way to make that work as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that what's so surprising, because this is the, only the second time I've seen this movie, but it is one of those movies that every time I watch it, it's kind of this moment where you realize like, oh, I'm getting my cake and eating it too, to a certain extent. This idea (laughs) that, yes, it has the very traditional kaiju moments that you expect from a movie like this, but then at the same time, it really does flesh out the characters and actually has something interesting to say, right? I mean, this film in a lot of ways is a commentary on sort of the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster that occurred in uh, Japan and seeing how they're able to do this real world sort of commentary on certain elements and then putting it into a movie that actually makes it funny, but it also Mm -hmm. has something serious to say and actually has something important that it's trying to say. And it does very well, I think is great because it shows like you can make movies that don't necessarily have to like 
beat you over the head with it to a certain extent, or even if they do beat you over the head with it, they can make it entertaining to a certain degree, right? This idea that this movie is very satirical to a degree that I think would probably surprise a lot of people that aren't prepared for that to the point where like the first time I watched it almost, I was kind of like, what am I watching again? <laughs> and then just the more that you get into the film and you realize the angle that they're going with, you come away with a great appreciation just in how different it is and how it kind of shows the naysayers like, no, you can make these movies with a message, with a fleshed out human uh, element and these things that normally they say, oh, these movies aren't capable of doing that, which Shin Godzilla continues to prove is not the case. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point about being kind of surprised by the tone uh, when you see it, because I had heard about this movie. Well, first off, I had heard that it was a Godzilla movie directed by uh, Hideki Anno, you know, the guy behind Evangelion, which I'm a big fan of. So that immediately sounded like an intriguing uh, you know, combination. But I also had heard that element of it being kind of a satire or an update of the original Godzilla about the fear around uh, you know, the atomic bomb and this being updated for Fukushima and the government response. So I kind of knew going into it that that would be an element of the story. But I wonder how this movie was marketed when it first came out. Because one thing to consider is, was that a surprise to people? Did they think it was going to be more of a straight putt Godzilla film or did they, did they expect it to be, uh, you, know, you know, take this uh, direction? So yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, I was I went into it completely blind. I think it was just based off of your recommendation. Like, hey, you should check this out. This does things a little differently. And I actually liked that. Again, like my the thing I always come back to is, is that in this day and age, it's so hard to go into movies and not have a pretty decent idea of like mm-hmm. what the movie is going to be about or the potential sort of twists and turns it takes. So thinking about like how this movie was marketed, I would bet a bunch of people that went to go see this were kind of like, what is this is like the weirdest type of movie ever, because I can't imagine how you would actually market this and really get a grasp of just how well uh, manufactured the entire thing is. And this idea that it is the ultimate sort of bureaucratic nightmare angle on the kaiju uh, uh, subgenre or the genre. And it's very interesting to me that they're able to give you just enough of the sort of traditional moments that you would expect in this to keep certain people engaged that are maybe like, oh, when does the monster show up? Like people like that. But I find that it's so endearing and it taps into such a, just a very authentic portrayal of sort of like how people probably assume governments operate and things like that to a large degree that you can see how this very fantastical scenario actually is playing out in a way that is not so ridiculous or exaggerated. There's no moments of this film where I found like, oh, that would never unfold that way. We would always have the kind of like proper response to this happening. Whereas they really do break it down to like the nitty gritty of bureaucratic bullshit to a degree that it's equal parts hilarious and equal parts kind of, kind of just disturbing to see like how much infighting there is and things like that, because they're definitely rivals in the real world. Yeah, no, that authenticity is, I think the thing that makes this movie work because there are so many different tones that it takes. Like it, it has a comedic tone. It has a horrifying tone at, at some points. Like the, the way that they frame the destruction that Godzilla is causing this movie is unlike anything I've seen in a kaiju movie before, where it's like you, you have that moment of, oh, it's impressive that, you know, just from a special effects point of view, that you see all this destruction and this crazy monster is tearing through the city. But then they start to show the cost. You know, they start showing people these mass evacuations, you know, you start really getting this idea of just how much damage and tragedy is happening just from this thing 
you know, moving in a straight line through the city. You know, that's that's before it starts to really, you know, unleash and show what it's actually capable of, uh, which is another amazing uh, moment in the movie. Yeah, on this rewatch, it really struck me in terms of just how Godzilla is almost very neutral mm -hmm. for three-fourths of the movie, right? A lot of what's happening is, like you had said, he's just moving in a single direction. And again, it's an animal or a creature, so it's does not have, or at least this portrayal of it is not hostile to anything for a majority of the film. It's just making its way through this environment. And yeah, there's gonna be destruction in that wake, but when you start to see the, the cost and the toll that is a result of humans and not mm -hmm. necessarily just Godzilla, this idea becomes like, is it, our, is it his fault or is it our fault? Our inability to sort of respond in an adequate way. And there's even a moment where the people from the government are sort of standing there and they're looking at the damage and they're saying that this has basically occurred and the it could have been prevented in a lot of ways because mm -hmm. of our inability to respond. It's not necessarily that Godzilla is purposely causing all this destruction, but it's our inadequacies in responding to an, to an event or an emergency and things like that. And you start to realize, like at least I did, I started to get pissed <laughs> at the human characters. This idea that like, what do you do 365 days out of the year if it's not to yeah. prepare for the unimaginable when that's you're in you're in emergency services of in the government and various agencies like this is what you do how are you so flummoxed of course it's a giant lizard it's a, yes yeah, an unforeseen you know catastrophe but still that that's their job to pre pre prevent that but one thing that i love about that is i, I completely agree like you're i think you're supposed to feel frustrated uh with the response you're supposed to be you know, it's it's supposed to, it's always like they're moving, they could have prevented things from getting worse, but, you know, there are all these things that are, all these roadblocks to actually being able to respond to that. But something that I like about it is there's no actual villain to any of it. Like, if this was mm. one of the American Godzillas, you know there would be, like, these things would be blocked by this one central character who's just like, no, we my company is going to benefit from the destruction somehow like there'd be someone with obviously evil motives and here you see a lot of maybe inadequacy but i still get the feeling that everyone is reasonably trying their best to stop godzilla and they're just failing to because of the way that the bureaucratic structures are designed you know like you have to answer to you know this specific group there are a couple of moments where they i think they're trying to plan out the response and they literally can't figure out which agency uh, is responsible for the response so like there and there are a couple moments like that that are just genuinely funny about you know we literally could be pulling the trigger we could be stopping this thing right now but we can't figure out who is able to actually give the command to do so it's like this this shouldn't even be a factor yeah there's that moment where once they move like one of the recurring gags is that every single time they want to make a decision they have to go yeah. to a new meeting room so there's like six or seven different meeting rooms that everybody has to convene in just to have a conversation that eventually they don't even end up having the answer for because that person's not there or they can't decide or they can't get relay information fast enough. And so in between that, though, like there is lots of bickering and arguing and semantics in terms of when they're going through sort of like each agency's paperwork or descriptions. And they're like, well, I don't know if a monster right. would fall yeah. under this specific category. And so it's like at the end of the day, it's so ludicrous in the moment, but you could literally see people in positions of power and government and things like that arguing about that like who is the buck going to stop with now and then in the meantime we're learning from the news and stuff and the broadcasts like oh 
all these buildings are getting destroyed and all of this chaos is unfolding. Meanwhile, people that have moved offices three different times are kind of like bickering about whether it's my responsibility or your responsibility. Start the military engagement that it's never, you know, it's never the prime minister yelling like fire at will, like into a phone and then the military, you know, it just does what he says. It's always, he has to pass the command to somebody who passes it to somebody else. And they, you see this little telephone game go from the prime minister out to the guys who are actually, you know, the military commanders and then they'll update information and then the like telephone game kind of goes back and then has to go through each person who is relaying the information again back to the prime minister it's like it it's this weird thing where there are a lot of moments like that in the movie that are are definitely played for humor and it's kind of just the absurdity of the situation that you know is probably you know it's it's funny because it's probably how it would actually go but as that is playing out like the clock is ticking. Like this is when Godzilla is actively destroying a city and some kind of, you know, we need some kind of answer, some kind of response right now. So it's, it works in these two levels of being funny, but also disturbing in, you know, the implications of it. Yeah. And I think you really don't get a true sense of just how disturbing the entire event is until you rewatch the movie, because it's always in the back of your mind now that you're realizing like every single second that is being dedicated to a gag or sort of just this infighting between bureaucrats, yeah. there's people literally dying. And one of the instances that really jumped out to me on a rewatch was when it's a brief moment where it shows a first responder of some sort who is screaming through the phone and talking about how the uh, refugee center that they had or sort of like the area where they were putting people that had been displaced, they were like, that location has fallen. Where do we send these people? And we never hear an answer for that really. Like there's there's a plan later in the film where they want to put people underground, but it just shows again, like how something as simple as not relaying an updated mm -hmm. piece of information can result in hundreds or thousands of lives. Of course, there's the context within this massive monster destroying everything. But even if it was a natural disaster, and I think Godzilla himself could be represented oh, by absolutely. a natural disaster, right? This idea that something is moving in a straight line and it's destroying the country and it's putting people in danger. And you know the trajectory of it, but if you're not going to sort of have the the emergency services in place or uh, having updated information and communication, like it doesn't matter if it's a monster that breathes fire or if it's a tsunami or a hurricane. Yeah, when he um, like that. you know when he first makes landfall in his kind of like primordial form, uh, the the least dangerous of the forms Godzilla takes, there's kind of this implication that people had at least been warned that this thing was in the water like you see people running through the streets and evacuating but that's also when you know again one of the the great gags in the movie is they're talking about how the scientists have have determined that it's physically impossible for it to get on land so the prime minister his updated advice he's giving is that oh, this isn't going to get worse this thing's just going to be in the water so everybody you know evacuate from there and then seconds later you see it just tearing through buildings which you know, if, if that's where the prime minister's head was at at that point you know he hasn't given some kind of evacuation order he hasn't said there might be a chance that this thing is going to crawl on the land. And if he does, like, this could be the disaster area. Like, when you see him just tearing through those buildings, like, those are presumably fully occupied uh, buildings because people just didn't even know what was coming. Yeah, and that moment in particular is great because it's it begins with him making sure that they have his, like, TV presenter uh -huh. suit ready. Meanwhile, he doesn't even have the most, like, updated information. And then as soon as he makes that announcement his aide comes over and tells him, and there's that kind of like smash cut to zoom in on his face. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. what, it made it to land? And then you see it, of course, just ripping through the streets. And I love that moment because 
that's a moment that ages really well, right? Obviously you have kind of this idea that he doesn't necessarily have his priorities in place, but then it goes to the absurdity of him saying one thing and then of course it's the opposite. But then really just seeing how that evolves and especially when like there's the next prime minister that's in place, you get a moment just like that, but the guy is like complaining yeah. about noodles being soggy moments before another form takes place and destroys more buildings and how many thousands of lives are lost. So the film does a really good job of not really, I mean, with the exception of the protagonist who we'll talk about a little bit, um, it does a really good job of kind of painting bureaucrats with this broad brush and this idea that it's like, it's a system that needs to be reformed to a certain extent across the board. It's not like there's one person that can derail things. It's if everybody's not on the same page, then it's this idea that like disaster will strike no matter what type of disaster you're dealing with. It is, you know, critiquing the government. It is pushing for reform. But then rather than ending there, it actually kind of shows that reform happened, right? Like this film is actually quite optimistic. You know, it's it's not really condemning anybody in the government. It's more condemning the system and how by its design, it's very slow to respond. But then they put that system down in the movie and then they come to a solution. Like essentially they're basically, uh, they're, they're kind of weeding out the middle managers, they're weeding out the politicians by the end of the movie and just listening directly to the engineers and scientists. And something that I love about this that like, again, I, I hate to keep comparing it to the, um, you know, the American Godzillas, but we have such a clear comparison of those three movies to this one. Every single one of those ended with some kind of race against the clock, right? Like there was always some kind of big action sequence that they had to do to, you know, usually get the completely, you know, co completely fictionalized piece of technology or device or whatever to, uh, you know, to stop the monsters. And in this case, it's actually like the race to the finish is more them doing the science, like them putting some, like crunching some numbers and, you know, putting some research and putting some data to the test and coming up with a unilateral solution for how they stop Godzilla and then implementing that. Like, it's not, it, I, I guess what I'm saying is usually the solution for the problem in one of these movies is something that is so action-centric and so simple that there's no way to really map it to reality. And in this case, they kind of show that the solution, it took a lot of cooperation, it took a lot of expertise in a bunch of different fields and it was hard work, but it eventually pays off. Like there actually is some hope to stop, or at least slow uh, Godzilla. Well, what I would say about that type of ending that we get is that it doesn't, it doesn't, like you had said, it's not this countdown to the very end. It's not like, oh, if we don't get this just right by a fraction of a hair, we like by the skin of our teeth, then mm -hmm. all is for naught. It shows, no, there is like, there is a, there is a positive outcome if we kind of put our heads down and work together, which I think mm -hmm. speaks to the optimism angle, right? It's like, if we kind of just weed out the people that are unnecessary and we kind of get the core group that know what they're talking about together. Yeah, there are problems that we can overcome even if they seem insurmountable. Whereas I think a lot of the sort of film's messages or messaging would get lost if it was this very traditional, like if they had settled on the bombing mm -hmm. plan that they have at one point towards the end of the film, right? This idea where, oh, the bomber, if the bombers don't take off right at this time and drop this many bombs specifically, Mm -hmm. then we can't win. Then we will never be able to overcome this idea. And I think that it might not sound like it is a big difference in terms of this idea that there is time versus there's no time. I just think that at this point, we're so used to, like you had said, the action, the overaction oriented nature to how these, at least the American versions of these films usually conclude that it, it makes hope feel fantastical. 
Whereas I could see some people maybe saying like Shin Godzilla maybe is, has an underwhelming ending just because of course they were able to succeed because they did what they needed to do to succeed and beaten succeeding is possible. So long as you do sort of what you, uh, like what they've been talking about the whole movie, which is kind of just coming together and working together. It seems almost obvious that of course they are. Because I'm kind of trained by, you know, the like Hollywood movies, it does have a slightly underwhelming ending if you're expecting like a big action sequence, because that ends up not being what it's about, right? But I mean, it, it kind of starts with the characters and then it finishes with the characters. It's just, I'm kind of, I'm almost trained to expect something different uh, from the movie. So again, on the, on the second viewing, when I've kind of recalibrated my expectations there, then it feels perfectly fine. I would agree. Like you can't not see it as being underwhelming just because we're so uh, trained to assume that we're going to get that big bombastic ending. But I think in terms of like the hopeful message of the film, it's not underwhelming because it's like, yeah, of course you're going to succeed if you actually kind of like go through the parameters that you set up and working together and cutting out all the middlemen and the bullshit. It's almost like, I think it's interesting commentary on people actually. Like we are underwhelmed when something goes according <laughs> yeah. to plan and it's not by that's the sort of skin of our it. teeth. I think that in that context, like that's how I picked up. I didn't obviously view it that way on the first time I watched it, but on second viewing sort of just knowing what the intention of the film is and sort of the ways in which they explore these different themes that I think are really interesting. Um, it makes her a pretty perfect ending. And I think now in getting into sort of the, this being the most horrific version sure. of Godzilla, I think we've ever gotten, I think we'll circle back to the finale and how this finale is actually quite haunting, especially after you and I talked about uh, before this, kind of just Godzilla's kind of horrific uh, evolution throughout the course of this film. So I guess in broad terms, like, what do you think about the overall design? <laughs> because we've never quite seen Godzilla like we have in uh, Shin Godzilla. I mean, I had my questions about it just from when I saw, the, like the first time I saw a trailer for it, because it's really strange. You know, it's, it's really goofy. Like we've updated Godzilla, uh, that classic design a couple of times now. Like there was the 1998 American movie, there's uh, the new ones. And of course, there's a there's a commonality there where they're trying to make it look as far away from a guy in a suit as possible. They try to make it look more believably animalistic. I actually think the design of the one in uh, the 1998 Godzilla is actually kind of cool looking, as, even though that's not that great of a movie. Um, but we're trying to make it more believable as a creature, right? And this movie goes in the completely opposite direction. Like, this is not anything this doesn't look like any kind of existing animal. It almost looks fake, but they somehow, they bring so much believability to it. Like it, it makes it look even more horrifying to me because you have what looks like, you know, these photoreal images of this just weird, like alien volcano thing, you know, that's, that's approaching the city. Like, it's just, it's bizarre and striking and uncanny, but that pushes it more into that horror side than, uh, than any of the other like Godzilla designs I've seen. So I, I completely came around to it when I saw it in motion. Yeah, I think a big part of selling it, the believability of this thing that looks kind of silly at first is the discovery period of introducing the creature, the mystery that's tied up into it, and realizing fairly quickly that we don't mm -hmm. know what to expect from that. And that is something very rare, I think, at least in a Godzilla film, right? This is what, the 31st uh, Godzilla <laughs> that film that's right. been made or something insane like that. So I think... We, we have certain expectations at that point, like mm -hmm. what Godzilla looks like. And so when I approached this movie the first time with zero context, at first I was like, 
what the hell is it? I assumed it was something else. I didn't think it was Godzilla. I thought it was just a monster and Godzilla was gonna fight this thing because it's so unknowing. It begins with like just a big pool of blood out in the ocean and then that ends up flooding the tunnels, which is a terrifying moment to see just gallons and gallons and gallons of blood rushing through the tunnels and flooding them and whatnot. But then you see this alien tentacle and then you see this slithering reptile that is essentially like slithering on its body, on its stomach through town and destroying things and it has no pupils and its eyes it's are really bleeding wide. as it walks. It's very disturbing because yeah, it's bleeding as it walks and it's very unknowable because it keeps evolving. Every time you assume, oh, I know what this is gonna look like, mm -hmm. it changes up and it kind of surprises you in a new way. And for me, at least, whenever I think about things that are evolving, it's kind of like comparing it to The Thing almost uh, from John Carpenter's The Thing. This idea that you never know when the yeah. evolutions are gonna stop. When is it gonna when is it gonna reach its final form? Is there even a final form? And for me, that unknowing is a really disturbing part of like cosmic horror, this idea there's an ever-evolving threat. There's a even if in Godzilla in this film, like he's not necessarily going out of his way to be an aggressor for a majority of the movie. At the same time though, how do is that new evolution going to further impact our environment when our own government is not capable of sort of dealing with the first form. Yeah, and I love um, just how bizarre that first form looks. It makes it feel kind of pathetic in a way. Like it's it's obviously like, it's extremely destructive just because of its size and everything, but it doesn't seem intelligent. It doesn't seem like it even has a way of defending itself. So the fact that yeah, there, there's kind of that bitter irony in the movie that they couldn't even do anything to this first form. Like if everybody had gotten their shit together and just, you know, unleashed everything they unleashed on the later forms of Godzilla onto that first form, they probably would have been able to stop it. Or at least there's a good, uh, you know, like a good chance they would have been able to. But like they let this just weird, goofy looking thing uh, get far enough into the city and start to transform that, you know, they they let the problem get way bigger. It's just, it's unfolding like right before them. Well, that ties back into the sort of satirical nature of the film and how if they had listened to the protagonist in that first meeting where he says, like, it's a creature in the bay. <laughs> of course, all of the more seasoned people in the government are saying that's ridiculous. Don't make a mockery out of this and all this. There's sort of that um, cla class and also age conflict, I think, that's <laughs> on display there. But also it's this idea that, like, if you had listened to the person that was the most knowledgeable early on, like you could have avoided this entire predicament probably to a certain degree, or you could at least prepare people for the worst. And then of course, save lives in the interim of all of the events that occur. And so that ties back into the satirical nature. But what I also like is just how ballsy it was to bring up this type of design and this idea for it. And I believe um, Toho didn't even want that originally, right? It was this idea that they didn't want them to redesign Godzilla at all, but then they said Bandai, I guess, said like, well, we can sell more toys this way or collectibles <laughs> oh, or something with a creature that has multiple forms. But I mean, how ballsy is it to have a creature that goes through what, with five different forms in the film, especially when it is one as story yeah, as and Godzilla we should, uh, we should talk about, you know, Godzilla's kind of peak as far as its power goes, because that's one of the strangest design decisions to me, like the fact that they even allowed it to uh, you know, essentially Godzilla charges up and its jaws kind of open up like mandibles and it just unleashes this crazy laser that just that you know creates like the biggest swath of destruction I think I've ever seen in a movie like in a in a single shot and it's uh it's scary like it's 
it's something I, it's definitely like not an image that I was associate with Godzilla. Like it's, you know, this really haunting, again, kind of Evangelion uh, looking moment. Like I can definitely see where the precedent for that came from. But it's it's this really just apocalyptic uh, like vision of Godzilla that, you know, kind of blew me away. Yeah, and I think that, again, like that ever evolving nature and they're obviously a more of a horror aesthetic, it makes Godzilla terrifying in a way that I don't think he's ever been. I think, especially with the more recent American versions, it's kind of like I'm in awe of the spectacle of how they're finally able to really bring Godzilla to fill the entire screen and just it's overwhelming and how big he is. And then you see the chaos and that unfolds. But this is the first time he's been truly terrifying in a way that even if he's not antagonistic early on, it's kind of like you can't even trust. He is not in control almost of his own yeah. movements to a certain degree or this idea that he's clearly a fish out of water or a lizard out of water in this environment that he is not supposed to be a part of. And there is something in that sort of unregulated chaos of just being a creature in an environment that's not suited for you that captures a natural disaster sort of vibe in a way that I really find terrifying. But then, of course, like you said, when he starts breaking out the... Uh, the evolved mandibles and kind of we see sort of his final form that stops at the very end of the film. Like it shows that there was something mm -hmm. even more horrifying in store for people and audiences. Yeah, we, uh, they definitely imply by the end of the movie that you know, even though there was much too late of a response for him, that final response that they did, like did stop something much worse from happening. So it's like, okay, we've, we let the disaster get out of hand, but if we hadn't acted even in the face of that initial failure, this was going to get a whole lot worse. Yeah, and I think that that is what made that final shot of the film so much more chilling on a rewatch because I didn't really I didn't really understand what I was looking at the first time I watched the film because they end up essentially like freezing Godzilla in place and then the camera lingers on it for the last final shot of the film and we see that there are like these skeletons or like almost humanoid looking creatures that are kind of like spilling off and they've been frozen in place obviously but it shows that Godzilla was yeah. essentially like birthing this next evolution of some type of Godzilla human hybrids or something to that extent. And this idea that all of a sudden this one very singular problem was on the cusp of becoming a potentially yeah. international one all at once and not sort of like this big behemoth kind of transitioning from each continent. Yeah, like almost like a virus, like it was something that was going to be literally impossible to be contained uh, very soon which would almost give the film kind of like a zombie vibe, which is even more terrifying. This idea that imagine like if zombies that were spread everywhere, but then they begin to evolve and they begin to adapt. And just thinking about how futile of a scenario, thinking about dealing with one Godzilla is, and all of a sudden you've got these ever evolving yeah. creatures that are everywhere now, which is something that, again, like I've never thought about Godzilla in that terms. I mean, it's always very sort of, for the most part, localized to a single location being ravaged but this idea that all of a sudden it, it's going to be everywhere all at once is a very kind of disturbing uh, idea that i've never really associated with godzilla before like i love that they keep that moment kind of subtle at the very end and that was something i completely forgot about this from the first time that i watched it but they do acknowledge at one point when they're analyzing you know the dna samples uh, from godzilla that this is something that could evolve and it could spread i think they literally talk about it like creating smaller versions of itself and that this could endanger the planet. But that's not what the end of the movie ends up being about. And that could have very, very easily been the the hook of like, we've got to stop Godzilla now or the whole world is in danger. And it's like, well, you can kind of abstract that. Like you can kind of guess why 
you know, the world or large portions of it would be, you know, in danger otherwise. But the big threat at the end of the movie, aside from Godzilla himself, is that the U.S. is going to respond by dropping a nuclear bomb on Tokyo. And I thought that was a really interesting, horrific situation that probably as American viewers, we can't fully relate to, but we can kind of abstract it. Like, this is one of the most significant, probably, uh, you know, wartime events in human history was the, uh, the bombing of Japan. And they mentioned something about how, you know, the U.S. is going to drop a nuclear missile on Japan that is 75 times stronger than either of, or I think the combined power of the atom bombs from World War II. And then Japan is in the situation where they effectively have to like willingly agree to that. And they, and that's one of the moments where the movie really takes this, this really somber uh, turn of them considering what they're actually like, what they're going to do here. And I really felt that like that, that felt like something that again, we don't have a perfect insight into that as people living in the U S but from the Japanese perspective, that seems like something that would really resonate with them. Like, what could possibly be worth this? Like, willingly dropping a another you know nuclear weapon on our city. Yeah, and I think that we definitely don't can't appreciate just how devastating that could be with the history uh, historical element tied into it. But you still kind mm-hmm. of feel the weight of that moment, and you definitely see that between the different people in um, the government and just seeing like how some of them are like, yeah, we have to scrap and rebuild, essentially, that's the only solution. But then you see the younger generation that are like, well, we want to think about the future of Japan and thinking about it, the nation as a whole, instead of being fractured, I think, is something that you can feel the significance, even if you and I will never fully have the same appreciation for the historical significance of that to a certain degree. Um, But that's an element that I think really makes this, it balances out the satirical, elements of the film really, really well, right? Because then it still reminds you that even if when they're sort of like taking the piss out of the government and just inadequacies, at the same time, it never lets you forget that there are real stakes here. And there are stakes that are, if, again, like if there was ever, let's say, God forbid, there was another massive war or something like that, would they be as likely to repeat the same mistakes that were made in history in terms of using that type of weapon. It's again, the film has a lot of parallels to history and whether or not the monster a monster is involved, you can very easily replace the boogeyman of the film as it were with a natural disaster mm-hmm. or a war or something to that extent. And I think that that speaks to just how well structured but how developed really the film's core messages and the identity and it can't be reduced to this is just another kaiju movie because it has those kaiju moments that everybody loves. This idea you see Godzilla, I, granted he's a little more horrifying this time and a lot bloodier, but you get to see him destroy things. You get to see him blow up uh, UAVs and helicopters and things like that. But there is also real significance mm-hmm. to what is unfolding. And it's, it really is, a. Ma- I think this film is a masterpiece in that regard in that it's able to sustain almost two hour runtime with something that is very untraditional but it is very well suited and fitting for this kaiju uh, genre. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's kind of going back to the origin of why this this whole thing exists in the first place. I mean, the original, I've never actually watched uh, the original Godzilla movie all the way through. And I'd, I'd like to, because I hear that it, you know, holds up in its own way. But, and I can kind of see why, because like you said, it's actually about something. You know, there's a, there's a core theme to the movie, which in that case, I guess was, the fear of the atomic bomb and also just kind of man's hubris for for creating this out of control uh, disaster 
And then of course this one has has all these parallels with Fukushima and it's also drawing from some of those original fears. And it's just so much more uh, impactful to me than like Godzilla 2016 or King of the Monsters or anything where like what are the messages of those movies that Godzilla is the best monster and then he's going to fight the other monsters but good thing he's on our side like I there's nothing I can really draw from that you know it's it's fun for the the 2 hours that the movie lasts but I don't know what to take from that whereas there's a lot to take from you know from this movie yeah it would be really interesting to see if you could get an american audience on board with a kaiju movie that really fundamentally uproots their understanding. I think I might be mistaken. I could have sworn that they were going to try to make a remake of this um, or something similar to this hmm. for an American audience. I forget I'd if I read that, that somewhere, but I, I find it. Yeah. I mean, I would like them to try that, but it's this thing where again, like it's a cultural thing about like the expectations for certain types of movies. It's kind of like when you read online, certain people are like, Oh, well, I don't like it when my horror movies try to have politics or social commentary. And it's like, well, yeah. they've always had that for starters. But also it's this idea that you need to like we should filmmakers should be challenging audiences expectations for things. And it's just the marketing that translates that in a way that doesn't create this sort of like vehement distrust in audiences from what they want from certain types of movies or what they or to feel like, oh, we're th you're throwing us a curveball with this. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see if they were ever able to adapt this in a way or market this in a way that makes audiences aware that, Hey, this movie's going to tackle, it's in a genre that you recognize, but it's going to tackle certain elements that people apparently are pining for this idea that we need monster movies that have more substance to them, that have more well-developed characters. But how do you really, how do you really advertise that in a way that other than just sitting somebody down and saying, you have to experience this for yourself? Yeah. Well, and, and one thing to consider is that this movie is absolutely a box office success. Like we uh, it's pretty underrated here in the US and and I don't know how to sell it to people like you're right about that. But this was uh, the highest grossing Godzilla film in Japanese history. It won best picture, uh, best director in Japan. It swept all the you know special effects uh, categories like this is a, a very successful movie for the culture that it was actually made for. So there's definitely, you know, there's clearly an audience for it, but, but yeah, I don't know exactly how you would recalibrate it for a, uh, for a Western audience. I'm, I'm wondering if like, after this pandemic is clear, I think there might be more of a hunger for movies like this, like taking that fantastic situation, like taking something sci-fi or supernatural, but then running it through the lens that we kind of see the world through right now, which is, you know, kind of what Shin Godzilla was about, like, you know, with, with us having, uh, I guess to, to date this podcast a little bit, uh, with us having kind of like made good progress on a vaccine uh, for the pandemic, like that's kind of its own real life success story, like what was happening in, a, in Shin Godzilla, where you do have this bureaucratic mismanagement, you have all these organizations who are some acting in good faith, some in bad faith, but somehow the scientists came through like they were still able to maybe not in the most optimal way like make a solution to the pandemic but they're still they're doing the best that they can that's a really great parallel and i think that i so wish that this movie would drop on one of the like a netflix or whatever streaming service because i think it would connect in that way like i think a lot yeah, of like so the, the film the film having this optimistic um overtone or throughout the or at least 
towards the second half of the film and ending on a very optimistic beat, I think that that is the type of movie that it makes this the type of movie that is perfect for right now. This idea, especially where we're at, not to date us too much, but this idea that we can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and that mm -hmm. if we keep doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're going to reach there a lot faster. And I mean, those are that is not a parallel or an emotion that you can really tie to any of the other American recent kaiju movies, right? It's kind of just been this no. very, this is going to be two hours entertainment of beat em up type things. But then afterwards, it's like, okay, I'll watch another one of these in three years. But I feel like well, even it's if they more make, escapist, right? Right. It's more escapist. It doesn't necessarily have a specific goal in mind. But I mean, we need to start legitimizing escapist style films or um driven films to have a little more substance to them because you can have escapism but then you can also say something that eventually trickles down and provides more substance to characters or sort of the uh, overall narrative in a way that mm -hmm. audiences actually want and are looking for and i mean people complain about these things enough and yet i don't see a whole lot of american attempts at rectifying some of these problems but um, one of the elements that i'm curious to hear what you think is because the way that we've been talking about the movie, people might not really grasp that, sure, there is a protagonist named um, Rondo and he's in the government, but it almost doesn't necessarily feel like, like I call him the protagonist, but it's more about the society as a whole rather than this mm -hmm. super hyper focus on one specific character with this character. He has his own arc, obviously, but he disappears for periods of time and the focus is very rarely solely on him. And I'm curious how you think they go about handling that because I think that's another element that could be jarring for some people, this idea that he's the protagonist, but he's not the sole focus throughout the entire film. Yeah. In fact, I almost think that the uh, the few characters that are closest to being protagonists or main, main characters in this movie are maybe the weakest element of it because, uh, well, I guess there, there are two sides there. First off, I think the main character is a little too simplistically written. You know, he... Uh, he he always seems to know exactly what to do and uh, always seems to be right and then he's vindicated later on it, it's just a little too simple and and i mean there is the movie does kind of play around with that point like he is in all the meetings he is essentially suggesting the right course of action and getting ignored until the very end of the movie so there is kind of this irony to that of like if they had just listened to you know the, the one guy who kind of saw the right thing to do then all of this could have been prevented but i just found it a, a little bit unbelievable where i think the age element ties in i think that's maybe a cultural thing that we don't necessarily um relate to as much or kind of identify uh with as strongly that's just this idea that like people keep telling him he's being ridiculous because what he's saying is so like out of uh, the specific type of like decorum you're supposed to have in these meetings around these higher ups mm -hmm. like whatever the sort of cultural implications are of how you interact with elders and things like that but I think that that is an example of something that culturally we can't necessarily relate to, but I think it is highlighted there in this idea that he's be he's not really being discredited for what he's offering up because there's video evidence of it. It's just that he is the youngest person in the room that is speaking up about something that goes against the sort of more seasoned veterans in the uh, government that, oh, well, whatever he says, even if it's backed up by evidence, it's nonsense because he's so young or they even right. say that at one point about the... Japanese American diplomat. They almost discredit her because she's so young at one point. Or she's not showing like the right amount of de decorum or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, in that regard, I do like uh, their inclusion in the movie and I, I do like them recurring and getting to see that several times. 
because it, it kind of shows like once all that goes away like I, I think the the american woman even says like like i'm not really good with uh, japanese formality like can we just speak normally or, or something like that i forget how she put it but but it was that idea of like let's put aside the manners of the situation and let's just try to you know focus on the situation and solve it and uh so so i actually really like the fact that we don't spend that much time with those characters unfortunately it means we don't get to develop them uh that much and and maybe the movie could have stood to uh, to gain from that but instead what we get is uh something that reminds me of the wire a little bit like rather than seeing these multiple characters with arcs we're seeing these institutions and we're seeing all of these different ways that they interact like i was i was kind of blown away when about halfway through the movie um the prime minister finally gives over full essentially fire at will uh commands to the military and then all of a sudden we add the military like onto the board like now we have a whole new set of characters and a whole new perspective to see this movie from and it's in the same level of detail as all of the politics and all the science uh, from before that like it's really fun to just see these institutions moving in ways that seem well researched and well considered into how they actually would be you know moving and maneuvering in real life yeah, that's a really good point. You don't necessarily get any one character sort of fleshed out a lot, but you do get to see how these organizations interact with one another. And yeah, I would definitely agree also, like nothing feels inauthentic. Like obviously I don't know the inner workings of government all that well, but it's this idea that the way that they're presented at least, it's very believable in the way that they sort of operate and the kind of lack of fluidity with that. Like you understand very clearly the purpose of each one of them, but then you see that it's almost like, are these things all supposed to work as one seamless sort of thing? Because it just seems like there's, you can, you almost begin to become an expert in how they interact with one another. This idea that it's like, well, if you removed step two, three, and five, all of a sudden this entire thing works better. But it's like, they are so ingrained in it that they can't see the sort of shortcomings. The fact that they're not all laughing at the fact that they have to go through five different sets of uh, phone calls to get yeah. the, or to relay orders, like things like that. This idea that, you don't realize it took it takes us 30 seconds to realize how ridiculous that is but then these people that have been in these positions of power for all these years maybe or just the way it's set up they don't realize maybe it's again tying into this idea that oh we have to go by tradition in terms of how things are supposed to operate rather than streamlining processes for the future that will make things run uh, more smoothly mm -hmm. yeah like they've got that scene where you know the helicopters are literally lined up with their guns trained on Godzilla's head and they have to go through so many phone calls. Just like they, I think they're literally sitting there with their fingers on the trigger, right? And they have to go through so many phone calls to tell them that they're ready to fire. And then they have to go through multiple phone calls again to receive the order that now they can fire. If you don't completely buy into this really unique angle, it's one of those things where you could maybe be sort of like off put by the mundaneness of the politics. But when you realize that the mundaneness of how everything operates is central to like the vision of the movie and kind of mm -hmm. like the commentary that it's making that sort of mundaneness you get a lot out of because you get to start to see you get to get, begin to pick apart things and and start to realize like oh well all of this sort of like bureaucratic nonsense is occurring like lives are on the line and that's something that you really don't i think i don't think get a true sense of until you rewatch the film and you have that in the back of your mind the entire time you're watching it this idea that okay every moment that we waste here in times of trying to get somebody to coax an answer out of somebody finally or relaying information, people are dying continuously. And I yeah. think that that, of course, is an element of a lot of monster movies or kaiju movies that 
I don't think necessarily is ever reinforced that well, this idea that, okay, Godzilla plows through a building. It's very cool, but you never really associate that with lives at a certain point with some of these movies. And with this movie, yeah. I feel that that weight is felt throughout the entire movie in a way that really makes it that uh, that much more impactful. Absolutely, and I think a lot of that actually benefits from that, you know, mundanity. Like I was thinking about in, um, I think it's King of the Monsters, they have the scene with Rodan, the monster that comes out of the volcano. And it's, it's a great action scene of like, you know, these jets like trying to fight him and there's goofy stuff like a, a pilot ejects out of the, the ship and then he gets immediately eaten by Rodan and stuff like that. And it's a, it's a really good action scene, I like it. But I didn't feel for any of the characters, like any of the miscellaneous, you know, jet fighters or, or honestly even the main characters in that movie, uh, particularly. And a lot of that's because um, nothing in that situation seems believable. You know, it, it seems like it's it's built to be an action sequence. Whereas in this one, you never get like helicopters or jet fighters going right up against Godzilla so he can swap him out of the sky or anything like that. You have what essentially looks like how, I don't know, in, in the post 9-11 world, like military videos online, like we've kind of seen how these things, these things happen, right? Like we don't have so much battles as we determine a location where action is going to take place and then we fire on it from miles away like that's that's essentially what modern war looks like and that's how it's handled in this movie too so when you see you know artillery and tanks and helicopters doing what actually looks like an orchestrated coordinated attack with multiple tiers from the safest possible distance and then godzilla kind of tears through that and starts doing some damage that feels much more real to me because it almost feels like oh this would actually be some you know, underprepared soldier who got killed in the crossfire because he didn't expect Godzilla to throw a bridge at him or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, it, it, I'm, I'm able yeah. to sympathize with these random characters who aren't even built up for a second, much more than I can from something that looks like a traditional action sequence. That has to do a lot with the pacing of the film, right? This And, and the bureaucratic nightmare that is this movie. I can sympathize with the soldier that gets killed in this film, even if I don't know them, because... Chances are their death was the exact result of bureaucrats that were tied up in arguing or relaying yeah. orders rather than, yeah, dude, of course you fucking deserve to get killed. You just flew your F-16 into Godzilla <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Whereas if you're one of those helicopters that's sitting there waiting and you're just sitting around and waiting and they even call off one of the, uh, the first assault, I think, with the helicopters because they're like, oh, they're civilians. And it shows that like every single time you pause, there is an opportunity for another disaster to strike. Mm -hmm. Or, again, if they had struck earlier in the film, potentially they would have been able to stop Godzilla or slow Godzilla down. Um, and so I think that that is a big part of it. But in comparison to like the American movies, those I think the American movies are so bad at utilize, at being economical with their screen time, whereas this film mm -hmm. is paced to perfection for being just short of two hours in that the threat is more believable because you see it at every instance and there's not immediately it's a strange occurrence that happens but it's not this sort of like red flag we need to go to defcon 5 mm -hmm. whereas in the american ones it's always defcon 5 immediately godzilla shows Every up second. he's yeah. pissed he's he's fully heightened and a threat and all these things so you don't really have any buy into the world because it's so horrific up front yeah. whereas this film is paced so well in that Unless somebody saw this creature tentacle or whatever with their own eyes, I bet a lot of people would not believe what was happening, where there'd be this delay in having a proper response to a uh, monster invasion or something like that. So 
That element of the film I think is really strong in just how economical they are with their screen time and in making the biggest payoff for Godzilla. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you used the word economical because I, I feel that way too about it where I think that people that this movie doesn't work for would consider some of it boring, like how many board meetings there are, how many just conversations there are with characters. But the reality is, even though most of it is people in boardrooms talking, it moves so quickly. Like almost every single one of those scenes has new information that's being delivered that, that recontextualizes what happened before. And even just the, the quality of the cinematography, like it's showing these you know mundane areas, like their, their government offices, their meeting rooms, but they really quickly establish who is in there, like how much time has passed, whether people are in a panic or in a rush, like which characters are, are central to this scene. Like there's there's a real, even, even though like this movie is two hours long, and again, it's mostly meetings in uh, government offices, it's like snappy, it's like really fast paced. So yeah, economical is I think the word for it. That's why that gag I think works so well in the continual meeting rooms because yeah, you're able to laugh at the end of each of those scenes because you realize, oh shit, they're in another office building again <laughs> yeah. or another uh, boardroom. But you're gaining information at the same time. It's not them, dr like, because if there was no information in that that was actually interesting or did not flesh out the plot more or the narrative, then it, those scenes just serve as being gags. And then after the second time, you're like, okay, this is getting old now. Mm -hmm. But if you're able to sort of make them useful informational scenes on top of feeding into this longer gag that goes throughout the entire course of the film, it works really, really well and you never really get burnt out on it. And I mm -hmm. think that for a movie that is just under two hours, I never got bored of it. And I think that that obviously helps when you're buying into this being purposefully different than what you might expect a kaiju movie to be. But I'm just amazed at how well the movie uses, utilizes its time. And then it gives you the best of both worlds. It gives you that very traditional Godzilla's wrecking shop moment and shooting lasers and destroying planes and all these things which is great but then also they're able to develop this story that tackles another side to an engagement that we are more than likely sort of bored of in a lot of ways like if you're not going to get Godzilla vs. Kong spectacle which is kind of like the Avengers Endgame eventual team up movie or fight movie or whatever you're not going to get those all the time so the idea that we're going to get another Godzilla next year an American one and it's trying to capture that same moment, for me at least, it's going to end up being exactly what I expect. And ultimately, I would probably walk away from that somewhat disappointed to a certain degree. Whereas a movie like Shin Godzilla, it's taking all of these risks and it seems like such a simple answer to, okay, we're being we're now kind of bored and being inundated with these kaiju movies. What is the what is the other side of the story? It's kind of like the simplest answer is always the best one in terms of redefining something. It's kind of okay, we've been focusing on the kaiju solely focus of these types of movies for so long. What does a human element to that look like where you devote most of the time to fleshing that out? And I think that Shin Godzilla still stands as a fantastic example that this not only works, but it pushes the genre in a way forwards that might not seem obvious, and yet it succeeds at everything it sets out to. Yeah, and it's such an interesting way to do the human element because, like, again, we've we've had that conversation about like the problem with the American Godzilla's has been focus on the human element and it just being kind of the wrong thing to focus on. But a lot of that's because, you know, there's nothing wrong with putting focus on human characters in those movies and they all could have benefited from it. But the way that they typically would portray it is like 
they kind of just turn everybody into um, your usual action movie characters, like in usual action movie situations, right? Like when I was getting, when I was kind of like um, in the lead up to Kong vs. Godzilla, I was rewatching some of the stuff on uh, some of the other movies on HBO. And I realized that, was it uh, Gareth Edwards was his name? The Yes. Yeah, the one mm-hmm. from 2016. I actually like quite a bit of that movie and the way that they show the kaiju, like they're they're showing them from ground level. You know, they're usually, like if you see, for most of the movie, if you see Godzilla or one of the other monsters, it's from the point of view of a human and they might be on top of a skyscraper because they're in the military, they might be from a helicopter, they might be, you know, from people at like ground level inside an airport or something. That's a great way to kind of buy you into the action of these kaiju fighting outside. But then almost every single scene, they would immediately cut to the main character in some kind of disastrous situation. It's like the very first time you see Godzilla square off against one of those monsters. It's great, but then one of the monsters knocks like a train off of its tracks, and then the main character is inside the train and he's having to like hold on to a little <laughs> boy who's about to fall out of the train. It's like, come on, you you had me like I was in the movie for a second, and then you just took me completely out because you've just put in an action sequence from a different kind of movie all of a sudden. And uh, something I really appreciate about this is like, well, first off, they focused on the the human characters doing something relatable. Like, even if this disaster situation was happening, people would still have to do their job. Like, they still have to go to, you know, they still have to go to their work and essentially try to do the best job that they can. But also, they never stick these characters into action situations. Like, they never have the scientists suddenly having to run to like turn off the device or something or, or whatever it is that's needed. And, uh, you know, first off, they have them kind of sticking to their their expertise, but they also don't have them interacting with the monsters in a way that diminishes the danger of the monster itself. Like in Shin Godzilla, if you're within a 10 mile radius of Godzilla, you're dead. Like there's no question about that. No one gets in a close scrape with Godzilla. It's just it's like being too close to an avalanche, like you said, a, a natural disaster. You don't have the uh, the protagonist on like a building right next to Godzilla, and then the scene where their eyes meet. Or something <laughs> their eyes meet, you know and then I mean? it's like, oh, is he going to get him? Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that the film is so devoid of, sort of just like whether it be like Hollywood or just these sort of like sensationalized moments that you expect. And again, that's where this thing where some people might view it as being like mundane or boring, but it's like, well, no, this is the most grounded portrayal of these very uh mm-hmm. very exaggerated fantastical events that you could have and in that you really get a sense of authenticity like you said you don't kind of have you have the the bickering and arguing between people that are in the government but it's never this thing where like they're getting into a shoving match and they're like trying to punch each other and trying to uh-huh. beat the other one into submission or whatever when they have an argument which if this was an american version we would have like two or three moments like that but it's this thing where it's just people that are finding a solution in a way that makes sense for their character mm-hmm. that really gives it a sense of authenticity between all the characters and sort of just the eventual narrative or the uh, the trajectory of the narrative of the story and where it goes in a way that is very refreshing. What some people might see as mundane, I see as being very refreshing and being very unexpected, even if it's something that is exactly along the lines of what you should probably expect. In a lot of ways, this idea that it's so devoid of a lot of the Hollywoodization of these types of moments, like having a lot less flair on something, I don't think necessarily, I don't think it takes anything away from it. I think it legitimizes it in a way that makes for a movie that it sticks with you a lot longer uh, than a lot of those other kaiju movies, I find. 
Yeah, and I um, some of it's personal preference, I'm sure. Like, we've both seen a lot of movies, so maybe we're kind of just used to... Like, when I see Godzilla vs. Kong, you know, I thought it was great. I thought it was very impressive in terms of effects and everything, and the fights were fun. But yeah, it's what I expected, right? Like, there's nothing unexpected about that movie. And in this, just by paring it down and then treating it with maybe a little bit more... Um, I guess just a little bit more graveness, like a little bit more seriousness, that completely refreshes the whole idea of the movie to me. Like when I'm seeing Godzilla versus Kong, I'm not, no part of my brain is thinking, what if, what would it be like if this was real? Like, what would it be like if, if Godzilla <laughs> right. was actually real and how crazy is that? But I'm constantly thinking that watching this movie about just how novel that would be. In some ways it reminds me a little bit of uh, the feeling of Cloverfield, where in Cloverfield, they didn't really do that much with the monster, but by having it all be at ground level and having every encounter with the monster be so disastrous, it made it feel a lot more uh, believable and palpable. Some part of uh, Shin Godzilla that maybe rivals that a little bit for me is in between Godzilla's forms. We see early on, right? He goes back into the water, I think, to cool off. And then we see for like the next couple of days, life goes back to normal. And I think that, and that's an element that really stood out to me again on a rewatch, this idea that like, all of a sudden, people just have to go back about, about their lives. Like, the world does not stop for these moments. And obviously, the more he evolves, the, the more uh, difficult it is to ignore. But it's very interesting just to see, again, the perception of society and how these things can affect you, whether you're at ground level, whether you're in the rest of the country. This idea that an event like that could happen and all of a sudden, two days later, people go back to, like, it's business as usual type of yeah. thing. And I think that that is maybe not a commentary that the film touches upon a lot, this idea of just like how much we're able to, like the resilience maybe, or just the people's inability to focus on one thing at a time maybe. But I think that that was an element that really stood out to me um, in terms of just society's role in a larger kaiju film rather than yeah. when the stakes are not the end of the world. At no point is Shin, like, Shin Godzilla might evolve into destroying the entire world, but the film, the stakes of this film are very isolated to Japan. It's never, if he evolves to the seventh form, then he explodes and the world explodes or whatever. It's nothing like that. And so it's interesting to me that the stakes are relatively lower for this specific film, even if um, in the long run, they might kind of blow up eventually. We talked about that before, but I absolutely think it would have weakened the movie to uh, turn it into this just on the nose global threat. Like it, it's definitely, it's like a you know a, a tragedy that's going to affect all these people that we've seen is that's enough like just focus on how much of a tragedy that is it doesn't have to be this world ending or universe ending uh threat yeah and then i mean all of that sort of goodwill that they had earned from making this very grounded portrayal of unrealistic events kind of just goes out the window then because then you're reminded oh well the stakes are the end of the world so okay like this is all fantasy at the end of it and i think that yeah in keeping those stakes relatively low in terms of not being the end of the world per se, even if it's not looking too great for uh, Japan. But I think it's interesting how they're able to manage our expectations in the sort of vision of this narrative that they had come up with um, and making it play out in a way that it just all comes together in the end of the movie. Like it all fits together in a way that really, really holds up well mm -hmm. on a, uh, on a rewatch. And I'm even looking forward to watching it again, just in terms of picking up on more little uh, element, maybe, societal commentaries or cultural things that I probably missed the first two times, but it's a film that I think definitely has a lot more 
layers to it. And I definitely find myself thinking about it a lot more and in different terms than I do with kaiju movies typically, because it's like, yeah, I enjoyed Godzilla vs. Kong for its escapism, action-oriented nature. But I think about that in terms of brief moments in the film, not necessarily the things that connect it. Whereas mm -hmm. it's the opposite for Shin Godzilla. I don't necessarily think about the movie in terms of like specific action set pieces, but I think more about the like the DNA strands that connect those big Godzilla moments together. I think about those moments more so. Yeah, Shin Godzilla, you know, I was so happy to go back and watch it again and happy to find that, you know, I enjoyed it maybe even more than I did the first time uh, on this rewatch because there was so much more to uh, to notice. Whereas on the other hand, um, again, I, I give Godzilla vs. Kong or any of those American movies a, a reasonably good review. But those for me are going to be like, if I ever think about those movies, I'm going to be watching like a three minute clip on YouTube of like a specific scene that I want to see. Like, I don't see myself ever watching one of those from start to finish again, or like ever having a reason to. And that's exactly what I did with Godzilla vs. Kong. I mean, I watched it the night it came out. And then the next day I was like, oh man, I'm going to write a review. I want to revisit some of those parts. I literally just rewatched all the fight scenes in the movie, but <laughs> yeah, there was no way that I was going to sit there and so soon afterwards, or even in the future, I don't see myself really watching one of those from start to finish. It's more about these set piece moments and then everything in between is kind of like filler that I don't care about. So yes. I don't feel incentivized to really revisit those moments because those are obviously not the highlights for me at least. Um, and it sounds like not for you as well. No, I, I don't need to see um, Millie Bobby Brown's adventure in the LED <laughs> hallway. <laughs> or um, the uh, the podcaster trying to get to the truth of it. But it, <laughs> yeah. again, it speaks to Shin Godzilla where every part of the movie is pretty integral to the overall experience, right? I, I don't mm -hmm. feel like you can skip over any of the moments because then it it takes, it literally takes something away from the overall experience of the film, which obviously is such a uh, no-brainer, simplistic thing to say about a movie, but it's rare in a kaiju film, at least, where you could, at least for me, something even like Pacific Rim, which I enjoyed, there's definitely chunks of that movie where if I did not revisit them, then I would not, if... I would not want to revisit them because they don't necessarily add much oh, yeah. to the experience other than legitimizing sort of those big action set piece moments for me. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the remarkable thing about this movie is that I enjoy it as a movie. Like what we're talking about, you know, all these things should be part of any movie that you're watching, but they don't necessarily have to be in a kaiju movie, right? Because at least for me, when I go and watch a kaiju movie, I adjust my expectations. You know, I say like, okay, this is just, I I'm watching this B movie for other reasons than wanting to see like a great or impactful film, right? Like there's just something kind of simple that I want to get out of it. And some of that simplicity is in this movie, but it functions way more as, you know, a full on drama uh, than anything else. So like, I don't, I don't find myself having to adjust my expectations for it, you know, just being a B movie or just being a Kaiju movie. Like it's, it's genuinely a great movie. Yeah. I think we, probably apply the same qualifier to most kaiju movies that we do with something like a video game movie, right? Something sure. that you're like, okay, it's it's an adaptation of something. I don't have super high expectations like <laughs> this is going to be Citizen Kane 2.0, but it's going to capture the sort of like visual fidelity that I want in seeing that thing come to life. And then you kind of look past some things like, oh, not to date us too much, but like the Mortal Kombat movie we were talking about that just came out. I went into that movie looking for awesome, bloody, gory fights, and mm -hmm. we got that mostly. So I had fun with it. But I'm not going to take it to task for having a shit lackluster story and <laughs> underdeveloped characters because yeah. that's not what I'm looking for in those movies. But 
I very purposefully have set those qualifiers sort of in venturing into that movie. And Shin Godzilla, I think, serves as a dispelling of that qualifier that you... I don't think we need to have those qualifiers on these types of movies, and this movie proves that. It's just almost ensuring that, whether it be specifically like American kaiju movies or kaiju movie, the genre as a whole, begins to realize that you can actually tell well thought-provoking stories and you can have awesome action moments in that. Mm -hmm. And that maybe is a, a much larger spanning conversation. That would be great if uh, somebody that was involved in making those types of movies could kind of like weigh in on maybe it's studio uh, infighting, talking about infighting, like studio bureaucrats and things like that, and the type of movie they want to make in terms of what vision a creative might necessarily have. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that. Because I, I do get the impression that a lot of creators want to make more movies like this, or that this is kind of the start of a lot of those ideas. And I think just from how many hands have to get involved, like how many, how many filters you have to go through to get a movie like this made, they end up all getting watered down and kind of filtered into the same uh, kind of movie. Ironically, uh, not through structure that's that different from the bureaucracy that's getting in the way of, you know, of stopping Godzilla in the movie. I mean, I mean, really, like, I, from working in production, I see some kind of uncanny similarities between the way, you know, the way, like, issues are discussed and mishandled in this movie, you know, as what happens on a uh, production meeting. And also, uh, just to just reiterate, like, this is a $15 million movie, which blows my mind. So this isn't like, I mean, what was Godzilla versus Kong? Over 200, right? Probably, yeah, I would, I would bet. So, I mean, they deserve props just for that, like for making this movie with $15 million. 155 to 200 million for Godzilla vs. Kong. <sighs> yeah, so with an entire city of people working on it. That is a really good comparison then because you look at Shin Godzilla, which is so successful, and it's got a smaller budget. And while, I'm of course, you're dealing with Godzilla, which is probably the most, it is the most famous kaiju, uh, kaiju name out there. But it's this idea that if there's less of a budget, studios are going to view it as less of a risk, ultimately. And when you compare it to this behemoth that's almost $200 million, the more money that's going to be more risk in that, right? And I mean, you've seen that with these massive budgets, and we've especially seen it like in the video game realm of things, this idea that games now are so big they cannot fail. Studios close on one bad game or one mediocre game now, they'll close because it didn't meet expectations, but when you're spending 500, $200, 300000000 million to make something, it's like, okay, this is, this is skyrocketed out of proportion almost. Um, yeah. And I think with films, it's interesting, especially because when you have that, I think that somebody needs to step up and say something at a studio meeting and be like, yeah, you don't need to give us $200 million, which nobody yeah. will ever do. But it's this idea that like, if you're approaching a project with a little bit more realistic in mind and not comparing yourself to the highest grossing movies ever, which is probably like Marvel or Star Wars, um, it's this idea that you can tell a more effective story with a less less of a budget. I'm not saying you need to go from 200 to 15, but there has to be some space in between where there is still a certain amount of budget that you can bring your vision to life while still ensuring that your creative vision really is being... Uh, achieved this mm -hmm. idea that we're not going to make a lot of cuts to this because of a budget that are going to make us sacrifice essentially like the core of what our unique vision is for this because something is getting lost in these massive budgets that i don't know necessarily what the answer is but it, i think it needs to be addressed in the long term yeah absolutely i mean 
I think there have been a couple of uh, really high-profile failures over the last couple of years that that really hinted that. Like, there's some other one where it was like everybody was living on these giant tank cities or something. Some giant. Oh, uh, Mortal Engines. Mortal Engines. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. So Mortal or Immortal? One or the other. Or Immortal? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know because I never saw it because almost nobody did, as far as I can tell. That's one of those movies that I actually saw that movie and I actually thought it was a lot better than people said it was. But again, it it is capitalizing on I would compare it to a kaiju movie and it being a spectacle, right? Getting yeah. to see these mon- these uh, behemoth cities and monstrosities of steel and pipes and steam and stuff appear on screen is overwhelming and fantastical in a way that's very cool. You get, especially you're in design, like you would love the designs of all the different uh, ships I and tanks and things like that. Yeah, and I was thinking about that with um, another one was Battle Angel Alita, which also had some designs I thought were cool, but I never saw it because both of those movies, I kind of funneled them into, oh, this is one of those big spectacle movies. And maybe at the time, I don't know what came out around that, but maybe I had just seen Thor Ragnarok or something. Like I had already seen my spectacle movie and my, my spectacle mm-hmm. quotient was kind of filled. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the problem is that I'm finding a lot of these movies are now like, it's like, if you want to see the spectacle movie, cool, here's your you know latest $200 million movie that you can go see that fulfills that. But they kind of are running together. Like, you know, they, I, I don't see much reason to go out and see one of those. Like Godzilla versus Kong was great because there just hadn't been one in a year. So it was kind of nice to see that uh, all of a sudden, but I wasn't hungry for another one of those movies right after I had seen it. So I'm hoping people will realize that, you know, if you go, sub 40 million dollars like you can start to make something that isn't just another spectacle movie it actually has some kind of interesting hook to it like i'm thinking of like in the last couple of years we've had you know the arrival and ex machina and annihilation like all these movies that were under you know under 50 or 40 million dollars that had really unique feelings that you wouldn't get from like a 200 million dollar movie yeah there's a certain texture and just kind of intimacy with those worlds that is lost in something that starts to exceed 50 or 100 million dollars, right? I mean, there's just, again, like, there's no back and forth. You can obviously have movies that have, like, those big spectacle moments, but you always need to revert back to that more intimate moment, I think, for especially, like, in the context of the movies that you mentioned, at least. When you start doing something like uh, Immortal Engines, like, it's larger than life for the entire movie. And when 85% of the movie is like that, when you try to go back to a more intimate moment, clearly this is not where the attention went. And for you to try to make those two compete when the scale is so skewed in one direction, it ends up feeling like a distraction from what the movie is act- what the movie should be about for our 100% of the movie. Yeah, so that's true. I think it is definitely a balance in terms of that kind of waning scale of like, okay, you need to have your spe- big spectacle moments, but then you also need to have those really refined unique, intimate moments that are making this different than the last five movies that were released in the same genre, the same sort of space that you're trying to occupy. So it's one of those things I'm really interested to see. Like, I I guess for Godzilla vs. Kong, like that's a movie that I wouldn't necessarily have been as hyped for had we not been in a pandemic and I could watch it from the safety of my house. Like there's this idea that right now we're in the heyday of getting a lot of movies that I don't know necessarily would everybody be as hyped for had they not been released in the kind of times that we're living in. Of course, there's always going to be an audience for that. But I was one of those people just like you that was like, after King of Monsters, like I could have gone another two years or three years without one of these movies per se, Um, unless it was something like Shin Godzilla that was kind of redefining the expectations. But I'm I'm down for spectacles, but 
I don't necessarily need to be inundated with them to the degree that we seem to be still. Yeah, and I'm just a little um, disappointed at how similar the spectacle movies kind of feel. Because then I sometimes I think back to like The Matrix when that came out. That was a spectacle film, and that's wildly different from anything that I've seen really before or since. Like that still is kind of its own uh, very standalone movie. Jurassic Park, even like that was a spectacle film that still feels kind of unique. And in the last ten years, they've all just started kind of um, kind of merging together. So I'm I'm really happy to see. A, a sub-spectacle film that like stands way out from from the pack. Yeah, and I'm really counting down the days until this finally hits one of the uh, major streaming network or streaming services just because I want so many more people to be exposed to it. Just because in more people being exposed to this movie, it just opens up people's minds to the types of stories that can be told within this yeah. genre. And I don't even necessarily care if people like it. It's just when people become more aware that these story I bet there's a certain portion of audiences that don't even know that you can tell stories like this oh, yeah. in that genre. Right. And I don't even care if people like it per se. It's just, it's opening people up more because then when people start to at least like these movies become more popular to a certain extent, you can at least start to have the DNA from something successful like this trickle into the more spectacle-y type films. Because when those, when you deviate from the spectacle for more than 30 seconds, Audiences are going to become more used to that and they're going to be more expecting of that to the degree that it builds up their tolerance for it to the point where it's just ingrained in the DNA of kaiju movies. And then we people like you and I get more of these kind of like interesting, unique uh, experiments that uh, kind of like trickle down into all these other types of uh, films. Well, yeah, there's the the kind of uh, Shin Godzilla hopeful angle at the end. Like, I, I didn't think about that, but you're right. Like, this is a movie that I think hasn't been seen by a lot of even filmmakers in the West. And hopefully when it does, like if it just becomes more easy to to access, like hopefully some of what it did will start trickling into the things that we're making. Because yeah, I would I would love to see more things like in this angle. Yeah, and I hope that we can see more, uh, more of a horror aesthetic uh, continue from Shin Godzilla and pop up in uh, other kaiju movies. Because I definitely appreciate the sort of more horror centric nature of this one. Um, and not to say more than others, but it's just, it's not, it's refreshing to have a kaiju portrayal that is terrifying again, rather mm-hmm. than this is just a cool monster, which I'm, I enjoy again. Like I enjoy the spectacle that's Godzilla vs Kong, but those are just like very cool monsters to me. Whereas never really associate the emotion of fear with them. Like I do mm-hmm. with Shin Godzilla, which furthermore makes this a very standout sort of kaiju entry for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, uh, as always, Matt, this was a pleasure chatting, uh, not only horror with you, but also kaiju. Maybe we'll uh, we'll wait and see if we get any more kind of like horror-centric kaiju films in the future. But uh, as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, yeah, I love this. Love this movie, and uh, this is great talking about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.